Let's turn together to Mark chapter 9. Thanks to the band for pointing us so effectively to our faithful God. And now the scriptures will do the same thing. Mark chapter 9. I've been in church a long time, and uh, when I was a kid, I picked up on a pattern. This is not really against anyone that has ever been my pastor or whatever, but I've been in enough churches long enough. There's a, always a difference between a Mother's Day sermon and a Father's Day sermon. You know, I feel like Mother's Day sermons were like, moms are the greatest gift of grace, second to Jesus, you know? They are so wonderful, and aren't we grateful for them? And it was always just this flower, just like this beautiful thing, and absolutely correct on all fronts. I feel like the Father's Day sermons were always a little bit like, come on, dudes. You know, like, where you at? You know, I need, I need you. Let's step it up, man, you know. I don't want that to, that, uh, to ever be the experience for any of our dads here. I want to have, like, the, like, let's exalt the moms and let's exalt the dad. I want that to, to definitely feel that, the case. And so this will not be a beat-down Father's Day sermon, but I do want it to be challenging. I think that there, are, there, there is a scriptural uh, challenge for us as men. And so I do hope that all the men are challenged, and I hope that the women in the room uh, can... can uh, Listen in such a way that lets you know maybe more accurately or more clearly or whatever it is, like what maybe we need in terms of prayer and support and all that kind of stuff. Because most of, like, I mean, the absolute vast majority of what we are pursuing is the same for men and for women. But uh, the challenges that are stacked up against us in our world, are they're just different. And so... Um, as I talk, I'm going to kind of direct this toward the men, but ladies, I hope that you will listen, and I hope that this will maybe help you um, as the men are challenged to, uh, to kind of know that support role that's there. Um, so earlier I read the verse from 1 Corinthians 16 about, uh, it says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And probably when you see act like men... If I were to say, what are the examples that pop into your head automatically? It probably isn't obedience to the Lord and confidence in his power, like, like Paul intended, like that's what the phrase means. Uh, it, you probably have a whole set of stereotypes that we all learned growing up that kind of define masculinity and what it means to, be a, to, to act like a man. And that proves my point, because Jesus comes and he redefines everything for us. And so if, if the young boys among us, like the ones in the nursery and some of the ones in the room here, if, if they are building their idea of what it means to be a man based on what the world is telling them, then uh, they're growing up incorrectly. And that's what we're trying to, we want them to walk in the truth much longer than we have. So we're, we're trying to correct a bunch of things and trying to listen to Jesus as he's like, no, in the kingdom of God, masculinity looks like this. We want those, those boys to grow up and they don't have to learn it the wrong way. They get to learn it the right way from the beginning, right? And so that's a part of what we're trying to do. And, uh, but seeing exactly what that looks like is very important. And so because what pops into our heads in terms of act like men may not be consistent with what the Bible says, it proves my point that we have, we still need to be churning through these things. We still need to talk about them and we need to pray about it and we need to pursue it and we need to recognize the fact 
that what Jesus says about masculinity is like he is the definer of that. He is coming, he's redefined everything, including something like this. And so I want to look in Mark chapter 9 at Jesus and his disciples. So the disciples were, they were probably anywhere from like their mid-teens to their mid-twenties, like kind of in that range. Like your high school, college age dudes, all right? And so there are times when I think we look at them and we're like, what is wrong with them? But some of it is because like they were just young. And it's nothing against anyone in this room in that age, age range. But literally your brain has not fully developed yet. Like that's like a real fact. And so it's just saying like, yeah, you're like we're sometimes treating them like they're adults, but really they, they still have some formation to go. And so that's why Jesus like would, would gather these younger guys because they're, they're, they're moldable, they're shapeable. And some of you, your most, most formative years in the faith were those high school and college years where people invested in you and discipled you and it, it really did, it made a, just a, such a huge difference. And so I'm going to, I'm going to kind of mock these guys a little bit, but you just need to understand that I, that they turned out okay. All right. Um, so look at Mark chapter nine, starting verse 33 it says they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, uh, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silence for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Okay. So could it be more like stereotypical of a bunch of dudes, right? They're walking along, just, just bros being bros, right? Just doing what bros do. And that is competing with each other, like sizing themselves up, arguing over, okay, well, when Jesus becomes the king, he's got to have like a right hand man. Who's it going to be? Well, obviously it's going to be me, you know, or no, I think it should be me. And they're like stumping for this opportunity to be at Jesus's like right and left hand. Who's going to be the vice president. Who's going to be the secretary of state, like those kinds of things. And so he, he wait, I appreciate that he waits till they get home. He doesn't do it like in, in public or whatever. He gets them inside and he closes the door and he's like, what are y'all talking about? And it's just like a very parent move. You know, when you ask your kids and they're totally silent, you're like, Ooh, this is not good. You know? And so they don't say anything because that's what they had been arguing about was who is the greatest. This is such a typical move for men, especially younger men, but it's a very normal thing for men. And, um, it just shows that they weren't joking around. They were arguing about it. So they were pretty serious about like where this goes. And so what Jesus does, look at verse 35, Jesus, he sits down. That's the, that's whenever the rabbi sat down, it means he was about to teach. So he sits down and calls them together. Here's what he says. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus redefines greatness in this one sentence. They had been arguing over who was the greatest among them, and they were in the complete wrong pasture of conversation. And he says, you want to know what greatness looks like? It looks like this, being a servant. So, does this teachable moment last? Like, does it stick with them? Was this the game changer for the 12 of them, or at least the 11? (laughs) Well... Skip down to verse, uh, sorry, chapter 10, verse 35. James and John, 
the sons of Zebedee. Okay, so these were these were his like the inner circle of the twelve. These were uh, he was just closer to them than the others. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, "Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you." You ever ask your parents that? Like, can I ask you a question? You have to, and you promise you'll say yes. That's basically what they did to Jesus. And so he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Meaning, when you, when you take the throne as the king of Israel and ultimately king of the whole planet, can we be the guys? So that thing we were arguing about a little while, a little while ago... Um, we just kind of want, we just want you to give us the inside track, just assure us. It's, I really, you know, tell us on the sly, it's going to be y'all, it's going to be fine. So in other words, no, the teachable moment from chapter 9 did not take root because their pride and self-centeredness was not easily uprooted. The rabbi sat them down, he told them, he redefined greatness for them, and they probably listened and nodded and whatever. But then just a little while later, they're doing the very same thing. And I believe that is because for men, that pride and self-centeredness and uh, self-ambition, I think that we are trained in it so much that even a sit-down from the rabbi doesn't necessarily dig all that out of us and replace it with this idea that no, greatness is, is, is one who serves. So men, let me just, let me hit pause on that just for a second. Let me say a few things to us. I don't, I'm not saying this is the case for you automatically, uh, but we're all capable of behaving the same way as these guys. Like it's, it is a real possibility for us to have that same kind of thing. And I'm not saying that we're like going to sit around and argue about who's the greatest, you know, we have, a, we have a facilities management team and these, these, these guys that have signed up and said, hey, we'll collectively, we'll take responsibility for keeping this place running. And they had a meeting this morning and I wasn't in the meeting, but a part of the meeting was about cutting the grass. You know, we bought some lawn equipment. We're gonna have this rotation. If you haven't signed up for it, we'd love for you to be a part of it. I doubt though that their meeting was like, well, let's, first of all, let's figure out who's the best grass cutter among us. You know? If you, if, you, if you know what ZTR stands for, move over here. And if you don't, then you can just leave. You know? there, there was not this, this probably competitive sense of who's the greatest. But that's not really what I'm talking about. It's, it's not really like the, the, like the obvious times where we're competing with each other. It's maybe a little bit more subtle. Because if we're left, left unchecked, there's a part of all of us men that's really, we're constantly trying to prove something, aren't we? You don't have to nod, it's fine. There's a part of us that we're constantly, we, we feel like we have to prove ourselves. If, if, if left unchecked, we can default into that. That's what they were doing. We're very capable of that as well. And when I say prove something, sometimes it's proving it to yourself. You know, like you're your own worst critic. You know, that you're, you're, you're constantly trying to live up to your own standards. Sometimes it's prove something to the women in your life, you know, trying to prove to your wife or your fiance or your girlfriend or just your female friends that you are, you're, you're stinking awesome, you know, right? 
trying to prove it, trying to earn it. Sometimes you're trying to prove it to your kids. You're like, look at what a great dad I am. Look, what I, look at what I did for y'all. So they're like, man, our dad is the best. We're getting him the best necktie for Father's Day you've ever seen. You know? Sometimes it's about trying to prove it to our peers. Guys, you think about your coworkers, uh, just the, you know, like the dudes that are in your life for the most time. There's that part of every guy that's kind of trying to keep up with them a little bit. You notice their lives. You notice, you notice what they do on the weekends. You notice what they drive. You know what, what kinds of, of things they do with their families. You know what their hobbies are. And there's a part of you that's trying to always figure out what kind of where you stack up in the pack. That's what the disciples were doing. Maybe you're trying to prove something to your boss or to your uh, social media friends or high school friends or you know Insta friends, whatever. Sometimes... We spend a lot of time trying to just prove something to our own fathers. You know, you just want, you just want that, that attaboy. You want that high five. You want that. You did good. I'm proud of you so much. And, uh, you just work and work and work and work for it. And sometimes just like the 12, we can get so busy trying to establish our place in the pack and keep up with, with each other and prove something to all these different groups of people that we end up just missing the point. And when we miss the point, we put a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of energy into things that do not matter. Just to try to prove ourselves to be real men as defined by something or someone other than God himself. And when that happens... You come up empty every time. You're like, why is this not fulfilling to me? Why is that? I mean, I've, I've, been, I've been achieving my goals or I've been like, whatever. Like, why are they still so empty? Or I've been failing at everything. Why is there such an emptiness in, in, in that? Like whatever, whether you're successful or you feel like a failure or whatever it is at proving or not proving stuff, it just comes up empty because that's what pride does. Pride is, it's drinking from a saltwater fountain and you just keep drinking and drinking and the thirst gets worse and worse, but you just keep drinking. And sometimes we look around our world and we're like, why, why are people that, why are people so sad who seem to have it all? And it's it's because they're missing it because we're missing it because if, if left unchecked, our prideful self idolatrous, uh, selves, can, that can be the dominant thing in our lives. It doesn't have to be, but it can be. And so while I'm not trying to beat down the men in the room, I am like, like can we just agree that this is formed in us, this is shaped in us from a very young age, and it doesn't just go away because you get older and because your brain fully develops, does it? Because there are men of all ages who, who, who live in this world that I'm describing. The same thing we see with these disciples. And all of this selfish ambition and self-idolatry is known as pride. And so what do we do about our pride? You know, like what, what do we do with this reality that these are the chips that are stacked against us as men? Ladies, what can you do... For the men in your life 
no matter what those relationships look like, to help them in, the, like, in this kind of like dominating cultural thing. Here's a couple of thoughts. One, uh, what do we do about it? Well, Jesus is already taking care of the problem, first of all. Like the, the most basic problem that we have in overcoming this, Jesus has already like taken care of that. That when Jesus came to the earth and lived the life that he lived of complete perfection, and when he said, I'm going to die and I invite you to die with me, and God will raise me from the dead and he will also raise you from the dead, your spiritual death becomes spiritual life. Your entire identity changes. That Jesus has freed us from this being the only option. Okay, let me say it again. What you see with the 12 right here, that is no longer the only option. Apart from Jesus, it is the only way. All you do is fight and scrap and compete your way to the top and try to accumulate all the wealth and all the possessions and all the status and all the whatever. And ultimately, there's a king of the hill and there's everyone else. That is the only way apart from Jesus. But Jesus says, no, I'm going to bring you another option. Romans 8, you don't need to turn there, just we'll throw them on the screen. Romans 8 says, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So previously the only option was sin and death, which is that like king of the hill type thing. But he has set you free from that and said, okay, that's still an option. It's just not the only option. Let me open up to you another option, which is complete freedom. That you can, you can choose someone other than yourself. That's a prison of death. I invite you into this freedom of life. In Galatians 5, it says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have been freed from that prison... Uh, have crucified the part of you that was only about yourself. It has been crucified. And, and now there is this, uh, this new reality that you live in where now you have two choices. There have been times over the years where I've, I've had a, like a diagram that I've used of, of two circles that have overlapped a little bit. And one side is that old prison, like our flesh, our selfish ambition. The other side is the spirit that is free. And then like, you're like in the overlap there. That now you can choose either way. And what that verse says is that that old part of you has been crucified, but it doesn't, it's not dead. Talked about this on Wednesdays a, a few weeks ago. It's not dead, but it has been dealt a mortal wound. That's what crucifixion does. They crucify you, but then you, and you slowly die. So that part of you, that selfish ambition, it is slowly dying, but it's not really gone. And that, I think, is the trap for us as Christian men. Is that we want there to not even be a second like circle anymore. We, we want there to no, be no choice for that. But there is. And we could fall into that trap very easily. And so the key is, how do we let that crucified part of us continue to slowly die? To become less and less powerful and to have less and less influence over us. So that we can read this story and be like, yeah, I used to be like that. I used to, I used to try to be the king of the hill. How, do, how does that happen? Well, we stop feeding that part of us 
by feeding the other part of us. We feed our spirits. We, we pray and we are in the scriptures and we gather in Christian community and this, like that, that like adrenaline that you have, that spiritual adrenaline that you have when the people of God are together and they do what the people of God are supposed to do when they're together. And you're like, man, this is, man, I feel so refreshed. It's like, like an oxygen mask, you know, it's like, it's like, this is amazing. That is feeding your spirit and that is starving the other part of you because there are probably very few times when you're gathered together and the spirit of God is moving and like all you want to do is climb the hill. You don't want to climb the hill. You want to, you want to like bow the knee to him. So in overcoming our pride, what we need to understand is that Jesus has already taken care of the big problem, which is that there wasn't an option. So now it's like, how do we continue to feed our spirit? And Jesus takes them there. He takes them of like, hey, here's something really practical that you can do. And before we look at that, let me throw two verses up there. James 4, 6 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if you are going to, like, if you are are a dude and you're like, okay, I need to feed my spirit and starve my flesh in regard to this selfish ambition and pride that, that tends to well up in me. How do I do that? You need to understand that in order for that to happen, you need grace. And that God is opposed to the prideful, like, actions of us. And he gives grace to the humble action of us. Why is he opposed to pride? Well, well, one, pride is uh, trying to rival him. Pride is looking at God and saying, I know better than you. Well, he's like, no, you don't. And it's not because he's arrogant. It's because he's in touch with reality and you are not. And pride broke his children. So he is opposed to it, not only because you're rivaling him, but it's because it hurt you. It's why mothers against drunk driving hate alcohol. It's why parents with kids at MD Anderson hate cancer. He is opposed to our pride because it brings pain. And so when we are humble, which literally is like when you bow the knee to the king, you bring yourself low before the king. When that is happening, he's like, I'm going to not only give you grace, but it takes grace to do that. You don't need grace to be prideful. We're very capable. Amen. We don't need his help to think that we're awesome. We need his help to bow the knee. And he says, you know what? I'm going to do that for you. So I bring you that verse because I want you to know that God is on board with what I'm talking about. He's on board with feeding our spirit, starving out our flesh in regard to this. Like he's like, no, not only do I want you to do it, I'm going to help you do it. You can't do it without me. Opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. A few verses later, James says this, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Through our humility, we are exalted. So in a practical sense, to go back to Mark 10. Look at what Jesus tell them, tells them. He, he gives them the steps. This is how this is cultivated and formed in you. This is, this is like, if you want to know, like, how do I become more humble? He's like, oh, here's, here's where you start. This is what he tells them. I'm going to skip a bunch of, the, bunch of his response, but look down at verse 41. So after, after they're like, can we be at your right hand and your left hand? The others find out about it, verse 41. The ten heard, they became indignant with James and John. Okay, so again, typical bunch of guys. 
when they start getting stuff exalted, there's jealousy and there's like whatever, and this is all going on, all this division. And so Jesus handles it. 42, he calls to them to him and says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. And then uh, I, I feel like, like my dad always did this. Like whenever he wanted to get his point across, he'd be like, look me in the eye. I feel like Jesus is like, look me in the eye. He says, but it shall not be so among you. That, like everyone else can do that, but that is not going to be the case for you. And men, I feel like Jesus wants to look us in the eye and say, look, that is not what I have for you. I do not have a life of selfish ambition and pride. A life of emptiness, of trying to accomplish all these things based on this really like weird standard set by the world. I have something different for you. It says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, look, I'm the pace setter here. I'm the example. And this is a hallmark of, of the people of God, to being a servant and putting other, the, like the needs of other people ahead of your own. And so if you as a man are serious about becoming increasingly less prideful and more and more humble by starving your flesh through feeding your spirit, Jesus says, start off by serving. Like that's the, like that's like that opens the gateway. That's what bowing the knee looks like. That's like, that's what humility looks like. And if you're tired of looking like every other dude in the world, this is like, this is how this is developed and cultivated. Now, please, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I'm not saying that I think all of our guys need like a beat down here. This is a challenge. And if you want this, let me give you a, let me give you a few maybe starting points. One, humble yourself before God. Ask him to show you how can I be a servant in all these areas of my life. Then listen to him and do what he says. That's, that's where you have to start. Because you're, you're going to have all these relationships and all these perspectives on how you can be a better servant. But no, no one is going to, like, none of those voices are going to stand before you uh, at some point. You're going to stand before them. None of those voices are going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the kingdom that I prepared for you from the beginning. Not your dad, not your boss, not your wife, not your friends, not your kids. No one else is going to look at you and say that. His perspective matters more than any of those other things. So your starting point is not seeking the advice of your community. It's seeking the advice of the one who came to give his life as a ransom for many. Then, my suggestion, after you have prayed and listened and begun to be obedient, then you start to have some conversations. So if you're a husband, I would encourage you to sit down with your wife and to say, I, I desire to serve you deeply. Can we start to pray about how I can do that more effectively? And even if you're a 9 out of 10 already, like, I want to be a 10. And wives... That's not your, necessarily your opportunity to tee off on him, okay? Because he is humbling himself before God and before you. And hopefully, he's already talked to God about it. 
So that grace for the humble is already coming his way. And so when, by the time he gets to you, he should be in a pretty good place. And even if that's a hard conversation, it's important. And then if you are a father, what I would do is I would talk to God first, of course. And then I would sit down with your kids and I would tell them, I want to, I want to be a servant to you. How can, how can dad help that? And they may be too young to understand, or they may be too old for you to really want to receive what they have to tell you, but bow the knee. Men of the church, talk to the Lord. Then set up time with one of the elders and say, I want to serve the church family. I want to talk to you about it. About where, like, what is needed. How can I be a part of that? Because you know what, men? We can't do what we're trying to do here without you. We can't do it. A lot of churches try to do it without the men. And they can't. They can't. They cannot. Go to your friends and say, look, I want to... I want to be a servant to you. Sometimes I know what that looks like and sometimes I don't. So as close friends, can we just talk about how we can serve one another better? You see, you see the pattern? It has to start with the Lord, but then like, bring that into your relationships. You might, this is going to sound weird, you might sit down with your boss one day and have this conversation. And that might seem totally ridiculous to you right now, but if God tells you to do it, I have some advice for you. You should do it. Bend the knee. This is how we were meant to live, men. And, spoiler, women too. You don't get off scot-free in this, but what's stacked against you is just different than what's stacked against us. And as much as the men in the room want to help the ladies, I hope that the ladies also want to help the men that much. We need each other in this. C.J. Mahaney has a book called Humility. If you want to get serious about this, I challenge you to read it, but it's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt you in the good way. He says, if humility is not being cultivated, then pride is constantly growing. That's the battle. But don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus has already taken care of the big problem. And he will step us through uh, the next step and the next step and the next step. And so wherever this hits you, I hope it is received the way in the spirit that it's meant to bring because... Uh, as, as, as a like grown man, I understand what is, what everything that I've said. And I don't bring this to you as like someone who's got it figured out. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm one of the 12 right there with you. And we're all just looking to Jesus saying, show us how to do this. And he will. Let me pray for us as the band comes back. God, I'm thankful that you have taken care of the problem and you have freed us from not having a choice and you freed us so that we can love you and choose you, but sometimes it's really hard because we still think that we're pretty awesome. And there are times when we think we can do a better job than you. And as disconnected from reality as that makes us, uh, it's still something that we fight. And so I ask that you help us. In all humility, I, I bow my knee and ask that you help us as a group. And whoever here this morning uh, is in that same spirit, would you help them as well? We can be prideful on our own. We don't need your help for that, but we cannot be humble without you. And so whatever the next steps are in front of us, give us courage.
and faith. Help us to act like men, act like women who are obedient and confident in your strong power at work among us. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen. All right, let's let's stand together. We're going to respond a couple of different ways this morning. It's what we normally do. There's really, there's kind of four four main ways to do this. You can sing, which we will do. We, you can pray. And whether you pray where you are or you want to come down these steps, it's wide open to you to do that. Uh, you can receive communion this morning where you, uh, you dip the bread in yourself. And they're going to say the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. This, that is him taking care of the problem. And so as you receive that, you're basically saying, I recognize that this body and this blood is exactly what freed me from having no option. Freed me from that selfish ambition. You can also give financially. There's giving stations on the corners. But as people move around the room, we're just basically saying yes to Jesus, acknowledging that he has already said yes to us. And so this is these are all ways that we bow the knee in humility to him. So as the band leads us and things are going on, you respond as you feel led. The tables are are open.